pushing for reparations. It's about rejecting the premise of this country and frankly, of, of this world as it exists today, that there has to be exploitation, that Black folks just are just going to be at the bottom, that Black folks just have to accept some notion that we're just going to, that life is about suffering. Life is not about suffering. And when we understand that we are entitled to live our full potential, it's a different kind of fight because you're not fighting from a place of disadvantage in the sense that we can't win. You're fighting because the vision is what propels you to fight. The vision is what gives you the energy and the willingness to fight even when you can't see the outcome. Reparations is about what world would we build, can we build, that reflects the values that we hold, that actually honors our dignity as people. It's a worthwhile fight. And so I think if if people, Black folks, and really everybody adopts that mindset, then we'll be able to keep pushing in spite of the challenges that we know are on the road. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. We're back at it, listeners, bringing you a new episode. And the conversation today is about reparations. I know we've kind of talked around it a little bit with a couple different episodes, but it's now time to have a full discussion about this topic and what it can mean for our community. Today, we're joined by Dr. Amari Inya. She is the manager of policy and research with the Movement for Black Lives and founder of Global Black. She's also a strategist and public policy expert working on local and national policy, as well as international affairs and foreign policy. She holds a bachelor's degree in journalism and political science, a master's degree in education, a law degree, and a PhD in education policy with a focus on evaluation methodology. Um, really, really amazing accolades there. I was I thought I was going to be getting a bunch of degrees since I'm in grad school, but um, Dr. Ina, you are very impressive. We appreciate having you on the show. It's an honor to be here with you both. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. So to kind of start us off, uh, Dr. Ina, we wanted to kind of, you know, frame the first part of our conversation with our first segment, talking about why we actually need reparations, because I feel like when people talk about reparations, they really don't understand the context of it because they think back to slavery and they feel like, you know, over time things have changed for our community and we've got opportunity, we've got rights and things aren't like they were in the past. But simply put, I I feel like people are kind of ignorant and denying the evidence that a lot of those historical aspects have, you know, um, you know, effects on us today, whether it be our school, lack of resources, grocery stores, healthcare facilities. I mean, the list can go on and on. Um, so whenever we talk about this conversation, Dr. Mari, um, how do we need to structure it to get folks to understand the direction we're actually trying to go? Well, I mean, I think that's a really good question. There's a particular frame when we talk about reparations, at least in the work that I've done, uh, that's quite simple. It looks at the the harm that was committed. It looks at who was harmed. And then the notion of repair is how to uh, repair that harm. There was an injustice uh, going back to even prior to this country's inception 
especially as it relates to Black people and to uh, now in the present day, the descendants of enslaved Black people in the United States. And we're just talking about the United States context now, although there is a broader international reparations push that is a vital part of this conversation. And so you mentioned some of the areas that we can look at to see the present day impact of that history, not just of the transatlantic slave trade, but of Jim Crow, of the blatant discrimination, which continues today. And so all we need to do is look at the current indicators, look at the uh, racial wealth gap, which is one of the, the biggest indicators of the persistent uh, effects of discrimination, racism, um, resulting from Black people being intentionally kept out of the avenues of wealth building, not just by regular you know, people in their day-to-day lives, but actually by the U.S. government. And so we can look at, for example, uh, the history of redlining. We can look at what happened with Black farmers who were whose land has been systematically taken. Uh, we can look at the lack of access to credit by some of the same financial institutions that collateralized their banks, for example, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, with enslaved people. <laughs> so these are these are facts. Um, it's undeniable the impact uh, that has that that we're seeing in the present day. And so the notion of repair and reparatory justice is this question of what can be done and what must be done to repair the harm that started with the transatlantic slave trade and enslaved Black people, enslaved people being brought here, but it has persisted uh, throughout this country's history. And it has to be, there has to be reparatory justice. No, I think that's a great way the correct way to frame the conversation of like, you know, repairing something in a justice or a wrong, you know, that we can all look back and prove these things happen. We experience, a lot of us experience them, but also generations have experienced these things. And so the conversation surrounding reparations has definitely taken a step forward over the last couple of years. I think, you know, I think even President Obama said during his administration, when he got in, like reparations was like a non-starter. There, there was there was no way in the world we were going to to seriously debate reparations in any form. And so here we are in 2022, where you now have cities like Evanston, Illinois, which is now providing reparations, you know, in the form of a housing program for Black residents, and are using uh, the marijuana tax to provide some, you know, provide some of that funding. You've got California now debating. Reparations. I think even Boston, Massachusetts is pushing to form a commission. Asheville, North Carolina passed, you know, a, a, a bill in their city council to, to apologize for the wrongs of, of the past, but also try to find ways in repairing some of these things. So the conversation, it's happening, but, you know, we still have a very long way to go to convince the majority of this country that this is even a worthwhile endeavor. You know, I think even... In a 2018 survey, only about 26% of the country even supported reparations. They may have ticked up a little bit, but it's still, you're talking over half of this country still does not believe that reparations is even necessary. So not to put you on the spot, but if you had a chance to sit in front of, you know, the, the half, the other half of the country, that's like, listen, we've come a long way. You had a first. You had your first black president, like Mitch McConnell said. We had Obama. So, like, why do we need to go through this? Why do we need to dredge up the past and have this debate about reparations? What would you say to those people? 
Well, I mean, reparations is not about having the first black. I mean, I think we have, you know, we, this conversation has come up time and again where, yes, there have been changes in this country, right? Over the last few hundred years, there have been changes. There have been changes to laws. Uh, the country has moved to a point where, yes, we have had a first Black president and all of that. But individualizing systemic problems is not the direction that we should be moving to, right? So looking at exemplars or individuals who have been able to ascend or succeed in spite of this country that is not the groundwork to establish the case for reparations, nor to understand why reparations are necessary. We really have to look at how this country has systematically and structurally sought to ensure that Black people in particular would not be able to uh, advance, would not be able to thrive. And they did that de facto, and they did that through laws, through the legal system, through the tax system, uh, through the financial system. And again, these things are all documented. So Whereas a few years ago, yes, this conversation was was a lot different. It was a lot more um, a lot more skeptics, and there are still skeptics. But a lot has also shifted in the last few years, and I think what this means is that part of our responsibility is that public education component, right? So those of us who are organizers, our responsibility is to organize our people around reparations, which means having these conversations about what it actually entails. What does reparations look like, right? We can't even assume that everyone has the same ideas in mind about reparations, but we have to organize the people. We have to talk to our people about what reparations entails. And then we can think about organizing the broader country, right? Because this is about narrative building and having a different narrative about reparations that establishes it as a possibility, and not just as a possibility, but as a necessity, as a qualification for justice, if we're talking about justice. And that's the process. That's the work that we have to do now to win people's minds, to win their hearts, and really to make plain that this isn't just some you know idealistic thing, you know, pie in the sky. There's a track record for reparations. When we look at what happened with Japanese internment, Specific reparations were paid to uh, the Japanese that were interned by the United States government. Um, we can even go back to looking at the establishment of the Marshall Plan after the World War. Massive, massive investments gone to uh, directed to rebuilding Europe uh, after the World War. So reparations as a concept is not new or novel. It is. It has been done, and it has been done to redress and to redress past harms. Um, and so there's a track record there, and that establishes it as not just something that is impossible, but something that is very possible and quite necessary, really even for the strength of what the, you know, the U.S. likes to tout its democracy, but for the strength of that democracy. No, I think it's absolutely possible. Uh, we're, we're seeing you know, individual cities try to carry it out in their own Fashion, I think, you know, even with Evanston, Illinois, you're starting to see people start to get twenty five thousand dollar, you know, grants or, or payments to help with, uh, you know, home repair and putting down payments on a house and things like that. But I do want to ask, too. So part of the job of getting reparations passed on a federal level, which is going to be we already know it's going to be extremely difficult, is you're going to have to convince you know, white Americans that this is a necessary thing. And so one of the criticisms of re reparations is that 
you know, why do you have, why does it have to only be for black people? You know, I think even the California secretary of state has had to say the reparations is going to be for descendants of slavery, like black Americans who are descendants of slaves. Like you had, she had to make that clarification. Some people, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable when you have a program that's just for one group of people. And so I just wanted to get your take on just those who have, who levy that criticism against reparations because of the fact that it is only for black people. They will say it's helping to divide up the country more. What do you say to that argument? Well, (laughs) slave trade targeted Africans. It targeted Africans, black people. Uh, They were the basis upon which a global economic system was developed to continue the exploitation primarily of Black people on the backs of Black people. The harms that were committed in this country were directed to Black people. And so the repair should be directed to Black people. Uh, The descendants of enslaved people here were the ones who were harmed primarily through this system. And even if we look at the era of Jim, of Reconstruction, the era of Jim Crow, if we look at um, other issues of state violence, uh, issues of environmental justice, when you look at those indicators, those who are really bearing the brunt are Black people. They are descendants of enslaved people. So the repair should be targeted to the harm and to who was harmed. It's just a very, um, at least in my view, it's a, quite a simple concept. With Japanese internment, it was clear the Japanese were held by force by the U.S. government. The reparations that were paid to the Japanese people went to Japanese people. There wasn't any question about should it be spread across all Americans or all people and so why would that logic shift now because it is uh, because reparations are, are designed for the descendants of enslaved people, at least reparations in the United in the United States? And so we have to move beyond the the notion of discomfort as being a reason why what is what needs to happen should happen. Of course they'll be uncomfortable uncomfortable and people will have some discomfort, but for the change that needs to happen and for this to move forward, it's going to require that people sit in that discomfort. I'm sure it was uncomfortable when Black folks were enslaved, right? So, very. (laughs) You know, so why should we now cast aside that and the legacy of it, plus everything happening up until the present day because some folks are uncomfortable? And the the level of comfort should never be a reason why we do what is right and why we pursue justice. You know, uh, Dr. Enya, you should go talk to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis because uh, they're, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they've got a lot of white discomfort laws uh, that they've got on the books yeah. right now. So yeah. you, um, I'll try to make sure we get your episode over to his office because he needs to <laughs> he needs to hear that message because I I completely agree not to prolong uh, this segment here but guess what you said is so true because it's like we were hurt for it wasn't just slavery I mean it's 
it, it, it went on. I mean, it's even persisted to today. I mean, there was you know, reports of redlining and banks. I mean, I think even in last year's news. So, I mean, it's, it's not an old thing that's, that's, you know, that's something that's just eradicated or a historical notion. It's something that's happening today. So listeners, that's why we're having this conversation because in order for us and our community to have justice, reparations has to be a part of the conversation. So uh, thank you, Dr. Anya, for bringing that in. So what we're going to do, listeners, we're going to take our first break, and we've got plenty more to get into with this episode. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And give a few dollars while you're at it. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Now let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Amara Inya, who is the Policy and Research Coordinator with the Movement for Black Lives. So first segment, we talked about just the persuasion part of why we even need reparations in the first place. And so for our second segment, we want to kind of shift towards, all right, we're going to, we, if we want to do reparations, how do we do it? How does it look? How do we implement it? And in what form do you provide reparations to our community? So usually when you hear debates about reparations, it's over, people are debating whether people should get a check. You know, should we be sending checks to Black Americans to pay, you know, for the wrongs um, done to our community? And so to me, this debate can sometimes narrow the discussion a little bit when you talk about reparations, because it doesn't have to be just in the form of a, a cash check. It could be programs and other things to help heal and, and rebuild the communities. And we have said on the show before, and I've said it, people act as though we don't have the blueprints to help people build wealth. Like the United States has been very good at helping white Americans build wealth throughout generations. Like the GI bill was masterful in doing that. It didn't appear on its face that it was a racist bill, but it was a federal bill that was implemented on a local level. And so locally they made sure that black people did not benefit from the GI bill, but we saw exactly what it did for the, for white, you know, soldiers who came home and were able to get skills training. They were able to get loans for houses. They got a, a footing here in the country and they were able to move out to the suburbs and get houses that are now worth 10 times what they were when they first bought them. So we know how to do it. So I guess my question is that even though cities like Evanston, they have their own program, you see Asheville, California is kind of debating it. Boston is thinking about it. We're going to get a very, a lot of different variations of reparations, but just from your your opinion and your and your research that you're seeing when you, when it comes to reparations, does it have to be in the form of a cash payment? What are the, some of the other ways when we say reparations? What can that look like? Sure, I mean, and I, I definitely want to take a moment to lift up so many organizations that have been on ground on these reparations discussions and have kind of talked through some of the variations in terms of what reparations look like. So you have organizations like in Cobra, you have. NARC, you have just so many who are on ground doing this work. And so for me, in in the work that I've been doing, it's it's an expansive discussion. So cash payments is, is part of a suite of things that should be included in reparations, because I, I've always taken the view of reparations as, a, as addressing systemic and structural harm, 
right? Systemic and structural issues. So for me, that means looking at all of the institutions that have perpetuated the, um, the harm against Black people. And that's everything from, again, the tax system, the financial system, the criminal legal system, the education system, right? And you can go down the line from there. And so the notion of repair should be just as comprehensive as all of those systems, structures, and institutions. Um, So it's an expansive discussion. It doesn't preclude cash payments. Cash payments can be part of the suite of things, but I certainly don't think that it should be limited to cash payments uh, because there's so much more that went into the, the current circumstances in which many Black people find themselves that it is, it is about how a country was built in a way that would ensure that Black people would be continuously kept at the bottom. And again, if we scale that up internationally, this is why a lot of my emphasis has been on international financial systems, international monetary policy, the relationship between the West and all of the countries in Africa, what is happening in the Caribbean, right? A global system was built on the basis of the transatlantic slave trade. And so when you go to any country where Black people are, you see the same pattern playing out. So it's an expansive conversation that I think has to take into account the system structures and institutions uh, and so that it it goes beyond just the the cash payments to include those other things so that the the solutions and the, the repair can be structural and systemic and not something that can be done away with after a certain number of years or something that feeds into a broader system that is still quite oppressive. Yeah. And I, I like how you point to the other aspects of the, of the diaspora and talk about, you know, that black unity. Cause we've, we've hinted on that a lot about, you know, global black unity and how that has to be a thing um, to get a lot of push for a lot of these issues done. Because unfortunately uh, in a lot of our countries, you know, individually, you know, we are minorities, you know, there's, you know, black Americans only make up, you know, 13 to 18% of the population or something less than that. So it's hard to move. And whenever I think about, you know, bills like H.R. 40, which is in Congress right now, trying to create a federal commission um, to, you know, educate and, you know, get resources about slavery and racism and how it's impacted, you know, black Americans. I find that the the commission, honestly, to be a, a stall just because, you know, the commission says it's wanting to identify the role of the federal and state governments in supporting institutional slavery, uh, forms of discrimination in public and private sectors against freed slaves and their descendants, and the lingering negative effects of slavery on living African-Americans in society. And the reason why I said it's a stall is because I feel like all of those questions have been answered. I mean, we've and we've got so much information under all of those three areas that the government has enough to move forward without forming uh, a, a federal commission that's probably going to be partisan, that's probably going to have an agenda. So you, what, what do you think uh, is going to really um, get the federal government to kind of quit stalling and, and move overall? Because we already have the, the bits and pieces to lay out an actual plan for reparations. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have the data, right? And so you're absolutely right on that. I think what's important about HR 40 is it's the formality of the federal government acknowledging that this has to happen, that the work needs to happen, um, and that the the data and the research that we already have 
can now and must now be operationalized into a plan for reparations, right? So just getting uh, HR 40 passed, I think is, is, it's a big step. I think it's important. Um, and there are so many groups who, you know, have really come together to really push HR 40 to where it is now, more than a couple hundred signers uh, in, in Congress that have signed on. Um, there's a current strategy to really put pressure on the Biden administration to let this legislation move forward. I think those are all of the right moves. And we have to be ready to to operationalize what we know, what the data and what the research tells us. I don't think that it stops us from being able to move forward with the reparations push. I certainly don't think that we have to wait for the legislative green light to continue to do what we're doing, uh, but let that process move forward because it all contributes to the momentum of this moment that we're in, which is the fact that reparations and discussions and the push for reparations is not going anywhere anytime soon. And that means that the federal government will have to do what the needful um, because it's not going away. So the best thing they could do is just pass HR 40, let that move forward and actually start to put together. We actually have the operational plan for what reparations could look like. And let's start putting it in, into action. I think that's, you know, that. To me, that's that's what makes sense from a federal standpoint. Um, and yeah, the, just to move that process forward and keep the momentum going. I, I I can I hope that we can you know do that you know I sometimes I'm you know I, I'm I'm a very optimistic person but you know I, I I'm a little iffy on the way our Congress is operating now because it seems like there's a lot of people even in the Democratic Party who don't feel like these issues are something that the party should really be like bread and butter issues there. You know, I think our president, you know, you know, yes, we need to put some heat on him, but it's like, you know, these issues were nothing that he really campaigned on. You know, it's not really been anything in his record. Like Joe Biden's a, a champion for reparations. And I mean, I think he has been a champion for restorative justice. And there's a lot of Democrats like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer who have done that. But it's almost like the energy or the fuel for a lot of these issues have just kind of died out. You know, it's almost like the Republican opposition has just been kind of like a, a wet towel on the flame and just put everything out. So I am, I'm going to uh, let you be hopeful and, and, and make sure that we can get that across the table. Cause uh, sometimes Congress just, just drains all your energy out of you, but, go ahead. No, they can certainly do that, but we, I think that we, you know, there are key pressure points that we can take advantage of, particularly because the midterms are coming up. You know, there was a lot of rhetoric around at this last election. And I think it was unfortunate that most of the the campaigning was centered on uh, being anti-Trump as opposed to what the administration would actually do for people. And so we heard a lot of rhetoric around what Black people being responsible for Biden winning and Biden was going to have, President Biden would have Black people's backs. And then we look at, you know, fast forward till today. And, you know, when you start to assess the track record, it's, it's lacking in many instances. And so we know that midterms are coming up. We know that the Democrats are, you know, it's less and less feasible for them to continue to ignore Black people and to use elections as a time to try to yell at everyone to come out and vote for them when they have not delivered. And I absolutely believe that reparations should be on the table uh, come leading into the midterms, because if we can't convince them 
uh, that this is an issue that is especially important to Black people. And if they are not responsive, then the question then is, well, are these the people that should be representing my interests? Who's representing our interests? And then voting for those people that are actually representing our interests. So there's an opportunity to leverage that I think we should certainly take full advantage of. You know, you're right. Cause I, I, my bad, dad, I didn't mean to cut mm. you off. I was just going to say, whenever I think about, you know, marijuana legislation and how, you know, our community really was compassionate about that. I, I did see a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, congressmen did pick up on that or politicians rather did, you know, get behind that and say, we might need to, you know, move forward on this because people are wanting to smoke. So I don't know. Maybe that's the thing that we just got to see that people are just wanting to, you know, have reparations. And that's just, <laughs> I don't know. It's going to take something like that, you know. But my bad, Devin, go ahead. Got to keep, keep this thing interesting. No, I think that that was a great point. And I was only going to say, you know, what I hope doesn't happen is when, as reparations makes its way into the political mainstream, that it doesn't get, you know, mischaracterized as special attention paid just to black people. And this is why you shouldn't vote for it or vote for a politician who supports it. Like reparations not only will help heal the black community, but it'll just help heal the country as a whole, as far as just relations between black, white people, Hispanics, and just finally having an acknowledgement of the things that black people have gone through. Because, I mean, psychologically, us having to keep asking for certain things over and over and over again, it can make you feel sort of like crazy when people don't acknowledge that these things have happened to you. Like, I feel like sometimes the country wants to ignore slavery and Jim Crow and the effects that it still has today. And it makes us feel as though we're, you know, like we're, we're not making this up. You know, we're not just saying this because we, you know, yeah, like it's gaslighting a little bit. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought up the notion of healing. I have the privilege of working with a cohort of organizations from around the country on reparations and racial healing. And it it includes people like Dr. Joy DeGruy, um, who have been really working in that space of healing, psychologically healing from harm at the individual and at the community level. And it is absolutely necessary for healing. When we talk about justice, you know, we, the healing component can't be divorced from the justice, right? Because the whole idea of repair is to restore, to make whole. It acknowledges that the harm has created, it, the harm is still there. And so, so much of the, so much of the conversations that need to be had are shut down because they're divisive. I would contend, yes, it's special attention to Black people. And why wouldn't it be? Because Black people were specifically uh, used in this country's history to build this country, were exploited, harmed, killed, maimed, discriminated against, and every other atrocity. Why wouldn't it be some special attention to make sure that we repair and heal from that harm? That is absolutely necessary to build a basis for uh, a country that can actually be unified. And so when I say, you know, it, the the fabric of our democracy, how can you have a democracy where you have people who have never, who have been harmed and have never been restored, or there hasn't been the active uh, movement to repair that harm in real and tangible ways? That is the question that, that we should be asking. And when you put the effort into the healing portion of this and recognize that reparations is part of a healing then it begs the question, why wouldn't we do this? Why wouldn't this country really take this on 
uh, as a as a priority. And you know, one thing I know we're gonna we're gonna wrap up this segment, but I just had to throw this out, you know, because we reported on this when I think you know whenever our first uh, whenever the podcast first opened up, but in 2020, uh, Citigroup had put out a study talking about the value that the United States has lost due to racism and discrim- and discriminatory practices. And they totaled that to be sixteen trillion dollars. I mean, that's a that's a lot of money. Like whenever people say that, you know, we've got a, a a a very big debt within our country, or that we don't have resources to fund the Build Back Better plan, you know, sixteen trillion dollars because of things like discriminating against us, not investing in our communities, not making sure we've got the best schools. That's a lot of money that you lose here. And this is why listeners reparations is an important conversation because that's wealth that's being taken away from us today and generations down the road. So really important conversation that we're having here. And we appreciate you, uh, Dr. Anya for, you know, bringing light to all of this, but we're going to take another break here. And when we get back into it, we're going to get into our third segment where we're going to bring this thing forward and kind of talk about some framework behind what we can do to create some movement within our own community. So listeners stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get back into it here. Our third segment. Remember, we're joined today by Dr. Maura Enya, Policy and Research Coordinator with the Movement for Black Lives. And our conversation with the third segment, we always like to move things forward, give us something, you know, some actionable items or whatever. And when I was thinking about my question, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what what with the you know white Americans who are listening to this episode, you know, what how are they going to be thinking about this? And you know, one thing that I thought about was that, you know, when I taught financial literacy, I understood that oftentimes minority communities didn't always understand financial literacy. There was a part that, you know, was a little bit of responsibility on them to kind of grasp that. And I think to, you know, giving people direct payments, that might not be the most effective because if they don't have good financial literacy skills, they might not know how to use it. Or I would think back to some communities who have expanded free college and different things like that, but that's not an incentive enough for people to enroll. So there might be some people who are out there who are saying, well, what if we do all these things? What if we create elements of business loans and we're not equipped to go take advantage of those? What do we right now as a community need to make sure that we're taking advantage of to position ourselves to best take advantage of these various forms of reparations? Because if we do get them and we don't know how to use them because they're not direct cash payments, it's not going to really fully benefit us. That's a really good question. Um, it's an excellent question because it it brings to the forefront what is meant when we talk about reparations, right? So reparations is not, at least, I mean, there are many different categorizations and characterizations of it, but we have to be careful that it is not just 
a program that, say, a bank implements that at the end of the day really is just beneficial to the bank, right? So we saw last, I believe it was last year, 2020, where um, several financial institutions got together and said, we recognize that our lending has been atrocious. And so we are going to create these programs to make sure that Black people get access to capital for businesses, homes, et cetera. When you look into the fine print, and that's for those who even had an actual plan beyond the statement that they put out, you might find that these programs are still designed to enrich the bank and to build their bottom line, and that the impact of the programs on Black people perhaps would be marginal. So what the question is, for how we prepare ourselves, it's really how are these systems and institutions going to make the necessary adjustments to ensure that Black people have an opportunity to participate? And so what this looks like is, how is credit assessed for Black people, right? So we know that Black people have been systematically kept out of having getting loans for businesses, getting loans for their homes, for their cars, uh, and the like. And so that plus all of the other attendant factors in society means that they're less likely to have the kind of credit score that banks use when they're doing a risk assessment for a potential uh, homeowner or a potential business owner who wants a loan. So in, instead of putting the onus just on Black people to try to figure out how in this current system they can magically come up with the 800 or the 750 credit score, the question should be, how will banks change their risk assessment strategies and processes to make sure that Black folks are not going to be kept out because they don't have the 750 or the 800 credit score, right? And so now we can look at what role do community development financial institutions play in that framework. CDFIs have often stepped into the gap to do the lending that major banks and Wall Street banks have, have refused to do. That's because they have a different assessment of risk. They're targeting communities that have been uh, ignored by these banks and these other financial institutions. So it's, we shouldn't, we, Black folks definitely have to be prepared and do what we can within this current system. But the onus really is on the institutions and these systems and really the institutions within these systems to make the necessary changes and to remove the barriers that have kept Black people out. So if we know that Black farmers were not able to access loans, they were not getting loans to, to be able to buy equipment or to be able to even keep their land, then we have to look at what role the U.S. Department of Agriculture played in that um, and not put the emphasis on what the Black farmers need to do now to try to get loans from the USDA when they've done, in many instances, did everything they were prepared. They had their paperwork in order, but the the institution was not willing to uh, to accept these black people uh, as credible to be able to lend money to. Right, uh, same thing in housing. I mean, black folks pulled their documents together in before the two thousand eight housing crisis, and then they were the recipients of predatory loans. That's not necessarily on them, although a lot of it was characterized as. Black people should have just not got those predatory loans. But look at the institutions. What things could they and should they have done differently? So I think it's really important for us because Black folks are always navigating a system that is designed that is designed to make sure that they cannot advance in this society. And so the bulk of the attention and the onus actually falls on the institutions 
that are within the, the institutions and structures in these systems that have to make the necessary changes to remove those barriers and on the federal government uh, to remove those barriers as opposed to what we should do. A lot of financial literacy conversations are like, you know, if you just budget better, everything will be okay. That's right. And I'm like, well, shoot, if I have 500 extra dollars, I would be, I would be, so good, but I don't, right? So it, we're so creative. We are so creative with what we're able to do. And I just can't imagine as creative as we have had to be now having to think even more creatively and come up with other magical solutions when the, the institutions have, have barely made the effort. Because if they had, that we wouldn't have a situation where in 2020, J.P. Morgan Chase lent more in one neighborhood in Chicago, one predominantly white community in Chicago, than to all of Chicago's Black neighborhoods combined when it comes to home loans. That's in 2020. That's not from 1940 or 1850. That's from two years ago. So all that they knew they should have done and all of this time they've not done, the effort has not been there. So the onus falls on the institutions, and we have a responsibility to continue to press these institutions uh, and to press government and to press leadership to make sure that they do the heavy lifting that they have not done in the past. You know, Dr. Anya, I just I just had to play uh, devil's advocate for my non-melanin friends that listen to the show just to uh, <laughs> make sure that they you know, understand that we're you know getting a, an inclusive vision. Uh, of what we need to be doing here. So I, I just, just wanted to make sure we understand that. Go ahead, Devin. No, but that's a, that's a great point though, because I've, I even in getting ready for the episode, I've I listened to some interviews with people and there, there was a, an economist, I don't know his name, uh, but he is, his argument against reparations was just what you said as far as Adrian, as far as, okay, yes. What if we get reparations, but if you don't change the underlying core foundation of how the community looks at money and their financial habits and things like that over the course of time, you will eventually just revert back to the condition you were in before reparations were even given. So I think a lot of people are looking at it from that lens too, of like, well, we could give them cash checks, but that doesn't mean they're going to know what to do with it. You know, (laughs) I have to challenge this economist. Again, there are a few who have that mindset. Mm -hmm. This is the same mindset. When we think about low income folks across the board, and the notion of them getting any additional income. And this is an important conversation because across the country now we have pushes for universal basic income or guaranteed basic income. And mm-hmm. they, they get the same kind of pushback. Well, you know, if you give them that money, they're going to buy drugs and alcohol. They're going <laughs> to buy too much chicken. You know, Jordans or something. <laughs> exactly. And the research has borne out that when people who lower income folks get that additional money, they're using it to buy necessities to buy groceries, to pay bills, to pay rent, right? We haven't even touched on the the insane cost of housing. That's what they actually use the money on. And yet there's this persistent narrative that somehow if you give people what they need, which is more money in their pockets, that they're going to, you know, start doing all kinds of things outside of meeting their basic needs. And that it's a falsehood. It's a myth. The research says otherwise. So the same, I think, carries over. When low-income folks get more money in their in their hands, they actually spend it on the things that they need. And if you look, the, the economic model of this country is it, it relies on spending 
for better or worse. It relies on people spending, consuming. And what we found is that when people have that money in their pocket, they're going to spend and they're going to spend on the things that they need. This was the whole rationale for the stimulus, both mm-hmm. back in, uh, with President Obama and the most recent at the onset of the pandemic. And so any economist or any any layperson who uses the argument that reparations is, well, you know, if you don't change the mindset, then it's not going to be spent. Well, first of all, who told you what these people should be spending their money on? Number one, <laughs> why should you be telling them what they should, should be spending their money on? Right. That's one. Two, they're relying on a narrow definition or narrow understanding of reparations as simply the cash payments. Uh, because my third point is when the institutions and the structures are doing the heavy lifting that they need to do, then it becomes less important what the, happens with the money because the institutions are now set up to where people can actually, and Black people in particular, can actually thrive uh, in this country. That No, I, I completely agree. And I think the pandemic proved that people know what to do with their money. Um, when they got extra money, savings went up, debt went down because people were paying their debt off. Like people know what to do with it. And so um, just before we go, I did have one last question. Just it's similar to what you've already answered as far as what we need to do to position ourselves to really take advantage of reparations. But even if we got a lot of these things, there would still be some problems that exist in the community that have existed for a while. I mean, you know, the criminal justice system is one of those institutions that when you think about reparations, you don't necessarily think about reforming the criminal justice system being part of that. So that would be something that we would still need to work towards because there would still be racist judges. There will still be racist prosecutors and, and police officers patrolling our neighborhoods. We would still have those same problems we would still have a need for black teachers and administrators and counselors. Um, and so, and we would still also need, I think a mindset change towards how we support our black businesses. We all know that a, the black dollar does not circulate as long as it does in other communities. So that's something we would still need to work on and gerrymandering will still be there and be used as a tool to limit our voting power. And so reparations would help us a lot, you know, individually and institutionally if we if we had those institutional reforms but for those other problems like the criminal justice system and gerrymandering and things like that would reparations help what what should we how should we look at those problems when thinking about reparations yeah absolutely i mean that's a that's a fantastic question because the so much of all of those other issues that you mentioned with the criminal criminal legal system, with education, et cetera, so much of it stems from the economic base of the Black community, right? So we know that education, access to education, access to quality education is tied in many instances to income, right? We have, at least in Illinois, a system of education that's funded by property taxes, so if you live in a wealthier area that is able to have more property tax dollars to fund schools, those schools are better funded. We know also that income is tied to access to health, right? Health indicators are directly tied to income, household income. We know that exposure to environmental hazards is largely tied to income and where people live. We just had a situation where on the north side of the city, a wealthy neighborhood kicked out this metal shredding plant because it was a polluter and the city was just going to move it down to the south side a community of color <laughs> and let them be there let them deal Again, with it yeah yes and that's two and a half years of fighting 
to deny that company the ability to move into that community where it would have polluted, which would have resulted in neurological issues, which are prevalent, unfortunately, in our community. These kinds of health issues that manifest as violence or manifest as what behavioral disorders that are tied actually to exposure to lead, exposure to other toxins in the land and in the air. We don't really connect those dots. There's so many things that are tied to our economic circumstances that could be addressed when we look at reparations in a comprehensive way. Um, So, you know, the other thing is the, the criminal legal system. I mean, the 13th Amendment and the allowance of, of slavery essentially via the criminal legal system is huge, right? But also all of the laws tied to mass incarceration that were designed to pipeline Black people in particular, disparity in sentencing, uh, disparity in terms of uh, even looking at things like stop and frisk and the way that these mechanisms were used to pipeline people, in particular Black people, into the the, the prison system. This is why our push has to be comprehensive. We cannot see these issues as silos, right? You cannot separate the criminal legal system from health, from the economy, from housing. And we certainly can't separate any of these from the financial system, right? So reparations is comprehensive and it bolsters all of the pushes that are happening on all of these specific issue areas. I totally agree. And um, we could talk about it for hours, but we're going to get you out of here. We know we have uh, one more segment, one more question for you, a final message. Uh, But this has been an awesome conversation. So we're going to take one more break, listeners, and we'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, become a monthly patron. Go to blackagendapod.com and click the donate tab or click donate under the timestamps as you're listening to the podcast. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our final message. Remember, we've been joined today by Dr. Mara Enya, Policy and Research Coordinator with the Movement for Black Lives. And to kind of set the stage off for your final message, you know, I was thinking about, you know, the fact that right now we don't have like colored only signs and stuff directing our people. But in a way, I still feel like we are still in a lot of those same lanes where we're being directed to mediocre services and unequal outlook on life and opportunity. And that divide persists because, you know, we had 360 or over 360 organizations this month wrote a letter to Congress urging them to move forward on H.R. 40 that we were talking about. And, you know, it's Black History Month, so I've been thinking and reflecting on, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King. And during one of his speeches, he was talking about, you know, I've seen the promised land. He said, I might not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So for your final message, Dr. Inga, can you remind us how reparations fits into this promised land vision? And what can Black Americans do on a personal level to join the cause? Absolutely. I think um, the work, the work that we do, and at least the work that I do and I try to do, is about making the impossible possible. It's about rejecting the messaging and rejecting the notion that we have 
always been given about about the scope of our potential and what it means to live a fully actualized life. When we understand that we actually don't have to accept the current framework, that is where we can then actualize our power. That's a place of power. And so this notion of pushing for reparations is about rejecting the premise of this country and frankly, of of this world as it exists today, that there has to be exploitation, that Black folks just are just going to be at the bottom, that Black folks just have to accept some notion that we're just going to, that life is about suffering. Life is not about suffering. And when we understand that we are entitled to live our full potential, it's a different kind of fight because you're not fighting from a place of disadvantage in the sense that we can't win. You're fighting because the vision is what propels you to fight. The vision is what gives you the energy and the willingness to fight even when you can't see the outcome. As Dr. King said, even knowing that he may not get there, right? Where is there? But he doesn't have to. He didn't have to. We don't have to. We just have to be committed to the fight that our vision for a world that reflects our values is worth that fight. And so seeing reparations in that frame as about world building, reparations is about what world would we build, can we build that reflects the values that we hold that actually honors our dignity as people. It's a worthwhile fight. And so I think if if people, Black folks, and really everybody adopts that mindset, then we'll be able to keep pushing in spite of the challenges that we know are on the road. And so that's just what I encourage people to do. That That's my motivation and hopefully it can help galvanize people to stay in the fight. And if they're not already in the fight to get in the fight. I definitely think I, I want, I would say, I I appreciate your message there at the end. You know, this went from being for, for a lot of people, unbelievable, impossible pie in the sky, you name it. It was not something that people really thought was going to ever happen, especially in this country. Never. But here we are in 2022, we have cities that are are for, you know forking ahead and passing their own reparations plans, and we have HR forty, which has over one hundred and forty members of Congress signed on. I mean, those things are unthinkable in such a short amount of time. So it, we have made progress. It doesn't mean we're going to get exactly what we want in the end, but at the very least, we're having these conversations and talking about real, tangible things that could happen um, because they are finally playing out in the real world. So. I appreciate your message there. And 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 just for the listeners too, don't get caught up in this conversation about reparations having to be checks. We always jump to step 10 and want to argue about, well, should people get checks? Like, no, let's just agree on step one, which is that reparations are necessary in the first place. Yeah. That's the better place to have the conversation because we skip over that to how it should look versus starting as far as like, was there a wrong done? Yes, there was. Should there be repair and healing? Yes. How should it look? That's how your conversations and discussions should start when you talk about reparations with your friends or family or coworkers or anybody. So hopefully take this discussion 
use Dr. Inga's, you know, insight and, and expertise as far as how it should look, why we need it. And hopefully that'll convince that other 70 plus percentage of people who don't support it currently, they can maybe listen to this conversation and debate with other people and understand that there is a very real need and a wrong that needs to be righted and reparations can get us there. So awesome, awesome conversation, Dr. Inya. And thank you, you know, for coming on the show with us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I was going to say, you know, our listeners don't get the privilege of getting to see you, but I was just thinking, you know, as I was, as I was watching your face through your answer, I was like, wow, you're super thoughtful. I was like, I hope law school is able to do that for me. <laughs> that was, you put that together so masterfully. It was like, you know, it was like watching someone paint or something. It was, it was very nice. I, I, I like that. But in all yeah. seriousness, really, really great conversation. I you know, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I know our listeners will be able to pick apart a lot of stuff. Uh, but before we let you go, we need to make sure our listeners can know how to follow your work and the work of the Movement for Black Lives, if you don't mind letting us know. Absolutely. So I am on all of the platforms at Amara Enya. So very simple. Um, and M4BL, folks can follow M4BL on IG, Twitter, Facebook at Movement for Black Lives. We also have m4bl.org. So folks can check out our expansive. We have a whole policy platform that covers everything that we talked about. We also have a reparations working group that is mobilizing folks around the country, organizations around the country with the reparations agenda. Um, And we have actions and things planned for 2022. So folks can check out m4bl.org and then hit us up on all of the platforms and hopefully get plugged in. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead, Adrian. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> We're good. I was just going to say, absolutely, folks. Make sure you pay attention to that because we didn't, you know, before this episode, I didn't realize how many organizations were actually working in the fight for reparations. But I mean, there are a lot of organizations national and international um, that are working for this. So that is awesome that you all are doing that. Listeners, make sure you keep in the loop with them. Um, What we're going to do, we got to give one more break just so Devin and I can come back and do our ending, but we're going to say goodbye to our guests. Remember, we've had Dr. Mara Inya. She is the policy and research coordinator with the Movement for Black Lives. Amazing person. Great to talk to. We appreciate her being on the show. And like I said, listeners, your last break and we'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's go ahead and wrap up the show and get you out of here. Um, So first up, you can look forward to hearing me and Adrian again this Saturday. It'll be February the 26th. We'll be bringing you weekly roundup number six. That's our opportunity to bring you all the news from the past week. So make sure you tune in this Saturday to hear us bring it all to you in a nice, neat package here on the Black Agenda podcast. And again, that's going to be weekly roundup number six coming to you on Saturday, February 26th. We'll have funny news, business, politics, you name it. You get us, you know, get get our commentary on what's happening in the world around you. So make sure you tune in on Saturday. So after that, our next regular episode is coming to you next Tuesday, March 1st. It's going to be another great one. So make sure you tune in for another fantastic guest and another fantastic conversation. That's just how we do it here at the Black Agenda. We don't like it any less than fantastic. And this is going to be another great one. So make sure you tune in 
uh, next Tuesday, March 1st for our next episode. And so before we go, we love it that you listen and you download the podcast and you support us that way. But there actually are some other ways that you can help us out. And AJ is going to let you know how you can do that. Absolutely, listeners. We appreciate any and everything you do to help us and donations. That's one thing that we really would appreciate because we're trying to do something great here. We're trying to do something where it's beyond just podcasting. Uh, it goes beyond just bringing you news articles, goes beyond posting on social media. Uh, a lot of things that we talked about with Dr. Inya, um, it takes money to do these things. I mean, we talked about money through reparations even. I mean, it, it, it takes a lot to create a movement for black lives that she was talking about. So we're wanting to be a part of that fight. We're wanting to join the cause and we want to do that with you. So all you got to do is go to our website, blackagendapie.com and click the donate tab. Or as you're listening, scroll down through the timestamps. There's a donate tab right there that you can click on. Both of them are going to get you to the same place where you can donate through our patron portal. When you donate to us, you actually get stuff in return and you can even get merchandise. So like I said, blackagendapie.com, click the donate tab or in the timestamps, click on donate. Then the other thing that we always like to make sure that we mention is our charity of the month. And for the month of February, we have been talking about the Equal Justice Initiative. The Equal Justice Initiative is committed to ending mass incarceration and excessive punishment in the United States. They're challenging racial and economic injustice and protecting basic human rights for the most vulnerable people in American society. They're a private 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides legal representation to people who have been illegally convicted, unfairly sentenced, or abused in state jails and prisons. They challenge the death penalty and excessive punishment and even provide reentry assistance to formerly incarcerated people. So a really cool organization. Make sure you check them out. But like I said, go to our website first. Make sure you check out all the things that we're doing and make sure you click that donate tab. Absolutely. Make sure you click that donate tab. Help us out here so that you can get more conversations like what you had today featuring Dr. Amara Inya, who is awesome, as you heard her expertise surrounding reparations, but also about a lot of different things. She actually did run for mayor of Chicago, so you should definitely check out some of her work and what she's doing with the Movement for Black Lives, and just check out the Movement for Black Lives as a whole. They're doing some awesome things in the community. And so uh, we want to thank them and Dr. Amara Inya for being available today. And uh, we want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in and supporting us as you always do. Make sure you're following us on social media. You can find us on, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. And again, our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. So follow us on social media, but also new this season, you can actually start reading some of the, some of the things we're talking about here. And that's because we've now launched a news section of our website. So if you go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news, you'll find a series of articles that have been written by some really, really talented interns that we have now had added to the Black Agenda team. And so make sure you check out blackagendapod.com forward slash news. That way you can take in some of the news that we're talking about, not just by listening to it, but you can also read it on our website. So make sure you check that out. We have some really, really great interns who are, you know, writing some really good articles. So read it, make a comment and tell them how great of a job they're doing. Or maybe there's some things you would like to see. So again, blackagendapod.com forward slash news. Find us on social media. 
at blackagendapod.com is our handle. So until this upcoming Saturday, we hope you enjoy the rest of the week and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.